Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the Zika virus. Um, I know, a year ago, how many of you have ever heard of Zika? A handful. That's one that's just kind of starting to get in the news a little bit, right? Um, Brazil was first starting to identify, or they, they'd identified it well before now, but when it was first really starting to get out and about a little bit. So, um, so, so that's what we're going to talk about today. A little bit about me. My name's Charlie Mossler. I'm a faculty member at the University of Finley in the College of Pharmacy. And one of the things that myself and another faculty member have done uh, for a number of years there now, probably this is our seventh year, I think, uh, we've taught an elective in tropical disease. And so that's kind of um, how I found my way then. Um, I don't even know how many years I've been speaking at this on different tropical diseases. But um, the Zika virus, up until this year, was not one that we taught in that class. Um, and, of course, now... You know, we kind of have to. It wouldn't be quite tropical disease class without talking about Zika virus. Um, from a financial disclosure perspective, I have nothing. Um, objectives. It can pretty much be boiled down to, let's talk about Zika. Let's talk about what that Zika patient looks like. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff in the news, some of it right, some of it not always quite so right, um, or maybe sensationalized a lot. Um, so we'll talk about treatment of Zika, we'll talk about other viruses that can kind of look like Zika and oftentimes are uh, misdiagnosed as Zika or maybe Zika is, is misdiagnosed as them as well. So Zika, even though most of us in this room a year ago had never heard of Zika, it's nothing new. It was first discovered in 1947 um, in Uganda. And, and what they were actually doing uh, is they were looking for yellow fever. And back in, in 1947, the way they did that was they'd put these monkeys up in platforms in the jungle, they'd put them in cages, and then they'd draw their blood, and they'd check. Um, so they were watching for yellow fever, or watching for a yellow fever outbreak. And so that's what they were trying to find, and in fact, what they found then was Zika. And the name of the forest where they found this, in, in this uh, monkey, was named the Zika Forest, so that's where it got its name. At that point in time... There was no indication that Zika caused any illness in people. Um, retrospectively, then, they went back and they drew blood and plasma on, on a bunch of people living in that area, and they found antibodies um, to Zika. But at that point in time, in 1947, they thought it was just something that infected um, monkeys and, and maybe some other um, similar animals. For the next 68 years... We really didn't know anything about Zika, and by we, I mean normal people that weren't doing research in Zika. Um, so from an epidemiologic perspective, it's a flaviviruse, and I imagine a lot of you in this room have heard of flaviviruses. Um, it's the same class of, of viruses that we get yellow fever, that we have chikungunya, that we have dengue fever, West Nile virus. There's something like 80-some different flaviviruses um, that researchers know of. And so Zika is similar to most of these. Um, the first human infection, so again, 1947, we didn't think it infected humans. Uh, first human infection was in 1953 in Nigeria. And then, to me, I think the most fascinating statistic in this whole talk is that next one. From 1953 to 2007, there are only 13 known human cases of Zika in that big time frame. Now, you know, how many hundreds of thousands, we don't even know how many hundreds of thousands of people um, might have Zika at this point in time. Something happened, and what that something is, everyone's still trying to figure out. But in 2007, then, there were 5,000 cases in one state of Micronesia, it was the island of Yap, Y-A-P. And approximately 75% of the inhabitants of this island got Zika at that point in time. Then there's another outbreak, 2013-14, um, in French Polynesia, um, where an estimated 32,000 people um, got Zika from that outbreak. From there, then, we kind of, I think, know, or at least have some understanding of what happened. 2015, March, in Brazil, was when it first really started to, to take off um, in this hemisphere, and it really hasn't quit a whole lot since then. Um, by December of last year, there's an estimated 1.3 million cases, and it's continued to spread um, throughout this whole hemisphere since that point in time. 
Currently, there's an estimated 60 countries and territories that have what we call autochthonous, or in, in that area, transmission of Zika, meaning that a traveler doesn't get it and bring it back, that it was actually obtained in the area where it was. And so now, of course, in the Miami area, we have autochthonous transmission of Zika in the United States. So here's kind of a map of, of where all we find Zika. And as you can tell, in this hemisphere, everywhere. Um, you're pretty hard-pressed to find areas, islands, countries that are not um, shaded in that yellow covered that show that we actually have um, Zika being transmitted in them right now. Um, a few statistics, and this is kind of to bring you guys up to speed right now with what's actually happening in the United States, and these are from a few days ago. Um, does anyone know how many cases of Zika there have been in the United States, whether brought in from another country or obtained in the United States? To, to date, right about 4,000. I mean, 3,988 due to travel. So somebody going to maybe Brazil or somewhere and bringing it back. And then 139 that have been transmitted locally within the Miami area. It's the only place we've really seen it at yet to date um, so far. Um, so, so 3,908 travel, 139 local. Um, when you look at, and we're going to talk a lot more about this as we continue along, but when you look at this disease, we think of it as being very problematic for which population? Pregnant, right? And so of those 3,988, 1,005 of them have been pregnant women. And so you look at that percentage, roughly 25% of everyone that we know who has Zika in the United States have been pregnant women. And so... Digging down into those statistics a little bit more, and again, this is from a few few days ago, um, 1,005, and what I couldn't find was how many of those babies have been born, um, but of the babies that we know have been born, um, there was 25 that were born with some sort of birth defect. And so, again, I don't know how many of the 1,005 have been carried to term and, and have actually been born, but 25 of them had some sort of birth defect. And, of course, that's why we know all we know about Zika, right, is the risk of birth defects that have been seen. And so we'll continue to talk about that um, throughout this presentation, or we'll come back to that. Transmission. How do you get this disease? And, and so there's, it's, it's mosquito-borne, right? And so that's where we really get this disease transmitted for the most part. What I didn't tell you yet was of those 3,988 cases in the United States, 34 of them were from sexual transmission, so without mosquitoes involved. And so now we're starting to see with this disease, which is different than the other flaviviruses, we're actually starting to see some um, sexual transmission. And, but, again, coming back to the mosquito, um, there's kind of two main forms of, of how this is actually going around in the environment. And so when it's in the jungle, so the, maybe the jungles of Brazil – we have what's called the sylvatic, and that's just kind of what that means is that it's the, the host, essentially, of this disease is going to be a monkey. Then what happens when this gets into the larger cities? Then we humans become the host, essentially, where the, the mosquito feeds on us and passes it on to another human, whereas in the sylvatic transmission, the mosquito would feed on a monkey and potentially pass it on to either another monkey or a human in that point in time. Um, when you look at the types of mosquitoes that actually carry this, is a lot of times we think like with malaria, and, and this isn't always true, but a lot of times we think with malaria that um, it's mosquitoes that bite at night. You know, that's the thing. Is if you, one of the, the things you hear is if you go out at, during the day, you're less likely to get malaria, but if you're out in the evenings and nighttime, that's when you can get malaria. And that's, again, not entirely true, but that's commonly believed. And so... This one, though, is transmitted by mosquitoes that typically bite during the day. And so here's just a, a little graph that kind of shows these two transmissions. Um, this top part would be the sylvatic transmission where you have uh, a non-human primate acting as, as, as the host, essentially. A mosquito, the 80s, um, one of the 80s family, usually 80s aegypti, 80s albopictus are the two that we see uh, as being most frequently carrying this um, disease. And then again at the bottom is where we have the person um, to mosquito to person transmission or that local or what's called the urban um, 
transmission cycle. Now, when we talk about the mosquitoes that are involved, Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus, those are mosquitoes we have right here in this part of the United States. And even, you know, when you look at Aedes albopictus, it goes up pretty far north into, the, into a lot of the United States. Um, so here we have Aedes albopictus on the right-hand side. Probably a lot of us have been bitten by those mosquitoes at some point in time. Now, most of the mosquitoes that we typically see in, in this area are the Culex family of mosquitoes. And, and those aren't thought necessarily to carry Zika, but there have been one, I think it was Uganda, had an outbreak a few years, well, several years back, where it was actually being transmitted by the Culex mosquito at that point in time. But right now, um, the big ones that we're seeing would be the 80s Egypti. Uh, when we look at 80s um, Egypti, there's not as many of those, again, in this area. And so the thought is, anyways, that theoretically it won't ever make it quite up this far north. Now, will it continue to spread in the Gulf states? Will it continue to spread in, in Florida and, and the, the Caribbean islands? There's a pretty good chance it's going to become endemic in, in a lot of those subtropical, tropical parts of, of this hemisphere. So when we look at, again, these two mosquitoes spread throughout the United States, but the hope is, or the researchers think, that a lot of it is, is going to be stopped, essentially, where you start to see freezing um, in cold temperatures. So we'll find out. Other top modes of transmission um, that we have seen over the, over the last um, several months have been mother to child. And, of course, here again is where we see um, a lot of the, the news or why this disease has really hit the news. And so mother to child during pregnancy – um, has been linked to some of the birth defects that we've seen. Um, and then again, at time of birth, it can also be transmitted to that child. There have been no reports of Zika transmission through breastfeeding, although I did just read an article a couple days ago um, where they might have to change that. There's been one suspicious case now um, where it, it may have been spread um, through uh, breast milk. So we'll find out what actually is, is going on there. But, but so far, for the most part, it doesn't seem to be that there's a real... Um, strong likelihood of it being transmitted through breastfeeding. So when we look at the other form, or one of the other main ways that Zika has been uh, found to spread is through sex, and that's passed partner to partner. And what is not really known for sure, well, I'll tell you the statistics the CDC or the recommendations the CDC recommends a little bit, um, but it's unknown for sure how long it can last. CDC recommends for men, if you have been to a, a Zika area um, or have no, known to have Zika, that you abstain from sex or that you use protection for six months. So they think it will live in semen for up to six months. In females and vaginal fluids, it's thought to be two months, eight weeks is the recommendation. Um, so again, but they don't really know for sure. That's what their best guesses are right now. Symptoms. So when you keep some of these things in mind, oops, when, you know, how do you know if you have it? How do you not know if you have it? Symptoms. They want to know what percent of patients who have Zika have no symptoms. A bunch, a lot of them. 80%. So 80% of people could be walking around in this room with Zika, and we wouldn't know it. Um, so when you start thinking about that, that becomes somewhat problematic, especially when it comes to microcephaly. It doesn't seem, or again, and it's, this is from the grand perspective of Zika research, it's pretty new, right? We don't know a whole lot. Um, a lot's going to come out over the coming years. Um, but what they think right now is that a woman doesn't necessarily have to have been symptomatic to have potentially passed that on to her child in the form of some sort of birth defect. Um, so it'll be interesting. And, and I gave a talk on this um, at the Ohio Pharmacist meeting last weekend. And one of the things I said, if any of you are looking for a second career, epidemiology of Zika, I think, is going to be something that it, it, it's going to make some people going to have careers, I think, just studying what happened you know, how did it go from 13 cases in, in 40 years to thousands, millions in the next handful of years? And so 
the epidemiology of this disease, I think, is going to be somewhat fascinating to look back on 10 years from now, 20 years from now, to see what actually is going on um, with that. Um, common symptoms. You know, a lot of these, for the, for the most part, we've all had, right? We've all had some sort of viral illness that developed into some sort of, into some of these symptoms. The one of the, the, probably the big one, that, and the one that probably sticks out most to you guys, is conjunctivitis. You know, that's not something that we always think about as occurring in patients who have some sort of viral illness. And the others, you know, maybe the, the rash, you know, a lot of us when we were kids, we'd get some sort of virus and our parents would take us to the doctor and they'd look at us, look at the rash and say, oh, it's just viral, it'll go away in a few days, and it did. And so the rash is not necessarily real surprising. The arthralgia, when we look at um, thing like chikungunya, its cousin, that's a big complaint, a big symptom of patients who get chikungunya is the joint pain, the muscle pain um, that is a lot of times associated with that disease. Fever, relatively low-grade fever. Most of the patients who get fevers um, associated with Zika, you're talking 101 and a half or so degrees. You're not talking 103, 104 or high fevers like what we see a lot of times with maybe dengue fever um, and some of the other flaviviruses. Um, myalgia again and, and headaches. So again, for the most part, you're not real severe symptoms for most patients. Um, how many people, if, if we leave... Um, those under the age of a month out of it, how many people die of Zika? Very, very few. I mean, there have been like a, a handful of cases of patients who were severely immunocompromised um, due to other diseases. Um, but really, there have been very, very few deaths associated with Zika. Now, when you get to some of the birth defects, yes, there have definitely been some, some deaths related there. Um, but in, in healthy adults, healthy children even, um, it's, it's an inconvenience for seven days or so. What's the incubation period of Zika? Does anyone know? A little bit shorter than that. The incubation period from the time you're in time you're bit to the time you get um, symptoms is, is a couple, three days. Um, so it's not that long. How long do you have symptoms? Maybe that's what you're getting. Usually about a week, if, if that long, for most patients with Zika. Again, though, keep in mind, 80% of them never know that they had Zika. So it's not um, something that we can just look at somebody and say, yes, you have Zika. Um, or that somebody knows for sure. Again, how many of us get headaches and we don't necessarily think anything of it? It could have been, it could have been related to something like Zika. Now, the rare things, and this is where we see um, more of the, the problems with Zika, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, so Guillain-Barre is a, a neurological disease that a lot of times with Zika patients, um, they'll be somewhat paralyzed and that paralysis may last, in some cases, up to a couple months. Today, in the United States, there have been 13 cases of Guillain-Barre in that 4,000 patient population of Zika. Um, so it's pretty rare, but for those 13 people, it wasn't rare at all, um, and it wasn't fun. Um, other things, obviously, microcephaly, um, which we'll continue to talk about. And then other brain defects. And so what they're seeing right now in Brazil, again, in Brazil, they've had the data now for, for going on close to two years of, of following this disease, um, seeing, observing the microcephaly. Now they're starting to, to see more other brain defects as well in these children, um, from vision abnormalities to hearing abnormalities, slow development and seizures. Um, and again, that could be just part of the microcephaly that, that they have seen. And so when you look at a patient who has microcephaly, I imagine most of you in this room um, have some idea, at least now, especially that being in the news, this is a, a pretty common picture that, um, that everyone's putting in magazines and, and whatnot. And so we see here a normal child on the right and then what microcephaly looks like on the left-hand side. And so um, what happened in Brazil... We don't know for sure because, again, the statistics in Brazil of microcephaly seem to be a much higher percent than what we see of the 4,000 cases in the United States 
or, or the thousand or so women who have been pregnant, um, and then those 25 children from that thousand. So, has anyone heard any of the different hypotheses for why we see more microcephaly in Brazil? So, some of the hypotheses that are out there. And so, the first one, and, and a lot of people, when when this first came out, everyone was thinking, well, something happened in Brazil where they changed the definition of microcephaly. You know, or physicians became more aware of what microcephaly was. Maybe there was a conference or something that everybody went to and they talked about it. And so, all of a sudden, everyone started measuring everybody. And, and so, that was kind of... Everyone, a lot of researchers, especially here in the United States, that's what they thought was going on. Because microcephaly hasn't been shown with any of those um, in Micronesia or in um, French Polynesia. There wasn't nearly incidents of microcephaly that we saw in Brazil. And so they thought something was going on from that perspective, that it was related more or less to just something changed in how Brazil reports microcephaly. Now, there have been enough cases of it, um, enough researchers have observed it for themselves, that they've said, no, it doesn't seem to be just that. That might be a few of the cases, right? Um, But it seems to be more than that. And so now they're really trying to figure out what's going on. Um, Some of the other hypotheses are that patients who have previously had dengue fever, that they might have a higher um, response to getting infected with chikungunya, or with chikungunya, wrong flavivirus, with Zika, and so that that might be causing in this one, the northeast part of Brazil, a higher percentage of patients. It could be something just genetic um, in the patients who live in that area that is triggering this. Um, but again, it's, it's rare for, for a flavivirus to cause microcephaly, and until this outbreak in Brazil, it was even extremely rare for Zika to be causing microcephaly. And so where researchers are at right now is they still really don't know why we see this huge increase in microcephaly um, with this disease, especially in that part or in Brazil. Again, it's not that we don't see microcephaly in other parts of the world um, with Zika, especially since 2015, but the percentages seem to be a lot higher um, in, in parts of, in that part of Brazil. Um, I think a lot of this I just already talked about without pushing next on the slide thing. So, again, still largely unknown what the risk is. When you look at the, the percentages of um, pregnant women who develop some sort of symptom, in some parts of Brazil um, or, or, or whose children develop some sort of symptom, it's been reported to be as high as 30%. Now, having said that, those were the early reports, and now they've kind of reduced that. Um, but there still seems to be about 1 in 20, 1 in 30 cases um, of, of female women who have children that have some sort of problem. Now, again, some of these children, or, or what, what they're seeing now in Brazil isn't always microcephaly, but they've started to notice learning disabilities and things as these children age. And again, these children are at most like two years old. And so what's going to continue to happen, nobody knows. Now they're, they're also starting to wonder at what point in time when that woman is pregnant triggers the response or triggers the micro. Is it any point in time? Is it second trimester, third trimester? Um, at what point in time? Indications seem to be that it's most closely assimilated with developing Zika or getting infected with Zika in the first trimester. Um, so right now, that's kind of where research is pointing at, is that if you choose to get Zika, choose not in the first trimester. Um, don't choose Zika anyways if you're pregnant, or yeah, I guess even if you're not pregnant. But again, um, so we still don't know. Two, three years from now, it'll be interesting to look back and see what the incidence of problems in children um, continues to be. When you look at other flaviviruses, so kind of continuing on the symptom perspective, um, comparing Zika and chikungunya, which um, everyone heard about for the first time probably about three or so years ago. Um, then Ebola hit and everyone forgot about chikungunya. Um, and then uh, dengue fever, which a lot of people around the world have, have struggled with for a long time. Um, when you look at 
patients who actually have symptoms of some sort. Again, 80% of Zika patients have no symptoms, so 20% have some sort of symptoms. Chikungunya um, is much higher. 70% of patients have some sort of symptom. And dengue fever, um, it, it depends on, on the serotype of dengue, but usually in the 20 to 60% range. Once you start going down through the actual symptoms themselves, like I mentioned, fever with Zika tends to be very low-grade fever, less than 101 degrees. Um, chikungunya and dengue um, tend to be much higher than that in some cases. Um, headache, yes, yes, um, all of them have headache. Dengue fever, we tend to see a lot more severe headaches. Patients can sometimes complain of migraine-like headache pain with with dengue fever. Rash, we can see rash with all of them, as with a lot of viral illnesses. Conjunctivitis, again, this is kind of one of those hallmark symptoms of Zika, if you had to pick one that was kind of unrelated to the others. Um, we see conjunctivitis with Zika, and we don't see it with other um, big flaviviruses like chikungunya or dengue. Muscle joint pain, we see it with all of them. The rates of the pain uh, depend on the actual virus itself. Zika tends to have the lowest or the mildest uh, form of muscle and joint pain. Overall, like we mentioned previously, Zika patients have very mild symptoms. If you're one of those 20% who develop symptoms to begin with, relatively mild. Um, and a lot of times it's the sort of thing that a lot of people would not even go to their physician about. And so when we see that 4,000 number of patients in the United States who have been confirmed to have had Zika, reality is it's probably a lot, lot higher than that, right? Um, even in Florida, where we see 139 autochthonous transmissions of Zika, they're keeping a very close eye on it there, but it's probably a lot higher than 139 when you look at the number of patients who truly have been infected with Zika. Um, chikungunya, uh, again, recovery may take weeks, especially with the arthralgia. It's not unusual for patients to have those, those muscle pains, the joint pains for months. There have been cases of patients having it for four months, six months, and even longer in some cases. Uh, and then dengue fever, as I'm sure many of you know, a lot of patients can become quite ill um, with dengue fever um, and, and can definitely cause deaths associated with that disease. Pregnancy. So this is, you know, one of the things that we talked about last week in my presentation with, uh, to a group of pharmacists was what do you do for that patient who comes into your pharmacy or wherever you guys are, are practicing? And, and they want to know, I want to travel, but I'm concerned about Zika. What's the best thing to tell them? And so when you look at the CDCs, when you look at the World Health Organization's recommendations, overall, and I think we can, whoops, I think we can all agree this makes sense. If you're pregnant, don't go to somewhere that has Zika. This may be a good time to choose to go scuba diving in the Arctic, if you're, no. Um, but things like that, you know, and in, in somebody asked last week, well, what about Hawaii? And there have been no cases in Hawaii of, of a toxinous transmission of Zika. Now, could we at some point in time? Definitely. Um, there's been dengue fever in Hawaii in the past, so yes, we can definitely see um, Zika. So, Maybe not the best time if you're pregnant to go to South America or the Caribbean. There's plenty of other places if you're traveling um, that you can go to and, and you'll be just fine. Um, if you're pregnant and you or your partner do travel to Zika location, then again, it's recommended that you abstain from sex in the case of a, a man for six months um, or in the case of a woman for, t for two months. Again... If you're pregnant, don't travel. If, if you're trying to become pregnant, best, again, to not travel to one of those locations either. Um, again, we don't always know for sure, from a symptom perspective, if somebody has Zika at any one point in time. All right, so diagnosis. How do we know if a patient actually has Zika? Um, the only real way to tell for sure is when that person was actually ill, take plasma or you can even check in urine and do RT-PCR analysis, and that will be very specific. The only reason we can really tell for sure at that point in time is because the antibodies that develop to Zika, 
the IgM antibodies are so similar um, to chikungunya and dengue fever that we can't tell for sure. There's not a test that's been specific enough developed based on IgM, which IgM ramps up after someone's been infected with Zika. So right now, the only way we can tell for sure is based on, on PCR analysis um, of, of a, a sample of serum or saliva at that point in time. So again, large differential, symptoms pretty mundane. You know, we've all and we will, a good chunk of us in this room in the next month, unrelated to Zika, will have symptoms that were very, very similar to Zika. So we can't rule other flaviviruses out. Malaria can look like that. Um, group A strep is what GAS stands for there. Group A strep um, can have symptoms very, very similar to that measles, rubella, and we could go on and on and on with that, that differential list. There's a lot of things that are going to have those sorts of symptoms. Again, preliminary diagnosis is largely based on where that person has traveled or who they've had contact with who has traveled to different locations. One of the things I, I forgot to mention previously, um, another area where we actually can find Zika is in tears. Um, so it's, it's thought that a lot of bodily fluids are going to have it. And it kind of makes sense with conjunctivitis um, that we might see some of the viremic particles there. And, and, in fact, it does seem to be there's been at least one case, and I don't know how they tell for sure that it was transmitted from person to person through tears, um, but there's been at least one documented case of it, of it being that way. So, again, diagnosis right now, preliminary diagnosis, largely going to be based on where they have gone, who they have, who they have had contact with um, that may have gone to one of those other locations um, as well. So treatment, what do we do? Well, right now we have nothing from an antiviral medication perspective that is going to be effective against Zika. Um, right now, what researchers, well, not just right now, what researchers have been trying to do for a long time is develop an antiviral medication against flaviviruses in general. That's going to hit a bunch of them. You know, yellow fever, dengue, the more that it could hit potentially, the better that drug would be. Uh, so now, of course, with Zika, you know, three years ago when there's been 13 cases of Zika in the last 40 years, they didn't really care about testing those drugs against Zika. But now I guarantee you that all those drugs that are being looked at, antiviral drugs, are being tested against Zika now as well. So it will be interesting to find out if they are able to develop one or not. But right now, we have nothing that's going to treat the actual disease itself. Best we can do is provide symptomatic relief. Uh, rest and fluids for most patients is really enough. They don't need a whole lot. And I think a lot of us are probably going to work feeling worse than what a patient with Zika might actually feel like at that one point in time. And so rest and fluids predominantly going to be the most um, effective for many of these patients. Antipyretics, again, fever is relatively low grade, but if you want to provide some symptomatic relief, good old acetaminophen um, is going to work fine. And then analgesics. The one caveat about analgesics is until it's confirmed to be Zika, don't give aspirin or NSAIDs, ibuprofen, um, Advil, um, Aleve, naproxen, things like that. Why might that be? Not necessarily Guillain-Barre. When you think about the differential, and this is kind of testing to see how, what you know about dengue, dengue, some patients with dengue fever can develop a hemorrhagic um, portion, can, can develop increased bleeding. And so the NSAIDs, your ibuprofen, um, your naproxen, and aspirin can increase bleeding even more. And so... Right now, we don't want to give until we know for sure, is it Zika or is it Dengue? Because if somebody's been in an area of Zika, um, other than, well, even Miami and Florida have had in the past, have had Dengue fever transmission. Um, so right now, we don't want to give anything that could potentially increase bleeding until we know for sure, is it Dengue or is it Zika or is it, of course, anything, you know, if it's group A strep, then, then that's completely unrelated. Um, so analgesics, we do have to be careful a little bit about which medication we can give. Recommended right now is just acetaminophen um, until we actually get confirmatory diagnosis. So prevention. How do you prevent um, getting mosquito bites? I think a lot of us would like to know that, right? 
Um, there's not ever, you know, there's nothing that's going to be 100% effective, again, unless you go scuba diving in the Arctic Circle. I don't think you're going to get bit by scuba or by uh, mosquitoes up there. Um, so avoid mosquito bites however you, you can. Insect repellents, there's a whole big list of insect repellents that, that work and a whole big list of insect repellents that, that people think or like to think work that don't always work real well. Um, and so go with whichever one you think is going to work for you or if you've had benefit before um, from one of them, you know, go ahead and do that. Uh, the, the funny thing, so one of my students sent me a picture, I don't know where they got it, I'm sure Facebook or somewhere, of a uh, of, of store, I don't remember which store for sure, in, in um, Colorado. Um, it was, I believe, I forget now, if it, I think it was Denver, Colorado Springs, it, it, it was up high in elevation. And it had a big sign that said, prevent Zika by whichever insect repellent it was. And so, you know, the, the, the commentary from the newspaper article was, we don't have mosquitoes here. Um, because of the elevation, you know, they don't have that. And so it was just kind of, you know, a store was trying to maybe make a little extra money on those Zika scare. I don't know. Um, but so, again, insect repellent, use it. It can help. Um, but, again, it's one of those things that not everybody likes to use. Long sleeve shirts, pants, you know, that, those can also help, but they're not completely going to be bulletproof, right, to those mosquitoes. And so they can help, but they're not in and of themselves going to be uh, real beneficial either. Nets at nighttime can help. Um, air conditioning and or screens can definitely help. Um, earlier we talked about that the mosquitoes that can transmit Zika, we actually have here in the United States in a large portion of the United States. So why don't we have Zika? Why don't we have dengue? Why don't we have yellow fever? We have West Nile, right? West Nile we have throughout the whole United States. So why do we have West Nile and not the others? Does anyone know or have any guesses? Definitely related to weather. And so it kind of goes back with what I said um, about the mosquitoes that actually transmit um, those different viruses. West Nile tends to be more transmitted by those Culex mosquitoes that we tend to have. We, some people call them house mosquitoes because you can find them in your house pretty much all year round at, at some point in time. Um, and so those Culex mosquitoes tend to be um, more uh, or better able to live through winter by hiding um, in siding, hiding under leaves, whatever. They tend to be better survivors. The Aedes aegypti, the Aedes albopictus, tend to be much more susceptible to winter. Um, so that's why we don't see a whole lot of them up here. But going back in time, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, we had yellow fever, we had dengue fever, and the whole we had malaria, the whole Ohio River Valley, we had all those diseases. So why not now? Well, one of the big reasons is, of course, you know, air conditioning and screen, you know, being better understanding of, uh, or being better able to use those things. Um, also, you know, there's something to be said about understanding. Now, I don't think, for most of us, I don't think we make it a habit of going around walking through our yard and dumping over anything that might have water in it. You know, that's a big way of preventing it in, in a lot of the world, of preventing mosquito-borne diseases, but we don't necessarily think about that. Um, a lot of people will point to things like DDT. You know, we think of DDT as being this big, bad, horrible thing um, because it, it did harm bald eagles and, and, and other sorts of, of birds and their eggs. But DDT really seemed to put a stop to a lot of, of these things. And so now, of course, what researchers are trying to do is come up with that good um, insecticide or larvicide that's not going to have any un, unnecessary or unwanted effects, which that's, of course, the part they haven't been able to figure out yet. Um, so, again, prevention would, would definitely be key. Um, we've talked about the unprotected sexual contact with partners at risk of Zika, I think, enough. So control, um, elimination of breeding sites. Again, like I mentioned, being able to, to recognize standing water is where mosquitoes um, come from, essentially. And so being able to, to get rid of any standing water that we may see. Um, again, in a lot of the world, it's, it's just being able to educate people to, to understand that. I think because of the risk of malaria, um, that a lot of people are aware of that sort of thing. Use of larvicides, use of insecticides, and so larvicides, can we add something um, into the water where mosquitoes are breeding um, to prevent 
them from, from essentially hatching and, and forming into mosquitoes, use of insecticides like we talked about. There's a lot of research being done right now in insecticides. And, and you know, you hear on the news about, you know, different sprays that were used in, in Carolinas and Florida. and Is it having an effect on the honeybee population and what's going on there or not? Um, and so w- we see some potential ra- risks to a lot of the insecticides that are out there. Um, one of the, the most interesting thing is the genetically modified mosquitoes. Um, one of the big things on the ballot, believe it or not, was are they going to release genetically modified mosquitoes in the Florida Keys? Did anyone hear about this? I have not seen more. Did anyone know how it turned out? I never think to look up. You know, there have been other things apparently happening. Um, did, I don't know if it passed or didn't pass. Um, so, so there was actually on the ballot in the Florida Keys, can we release these genetically modified mosquitoes into the population or not? What they're hoping to do, and there's different types of genetically modified mosquitoes. Um, one of the types is essentially GMO mosquitoes that are being released that, and they're males, that when they breed with females in the wild, the females will actually be able to lay eggs and the, the, the babies will actually hatch. But they don't really go any further than that. They're non-viable from that perspective. Um, and so those um, are, are interesting. Of course, there's always some concern anytime you do things like that. What's the downhill effect going to be? I think we'd all pretty much agree we'd like to get rid of If mosquitoes didn't exist, we'd be okay, right? Um, but some people always point out we don't know what the world would look like without mosquitoes. What actually might happen um, based on controlling those things. And so I think a lot of us, though, from medic- medication or from a medical standpoint, we see all the mosquito-borne diseases. It's hard to not think about it be better um, without mosquitoes. And so it will be interesting, I think, as they continue to develop different types of control. Vaccines. Um, pretty much any time you open up a newspaper, at least once a week, once a month for sure, there's some story about a Zika vaccine, and then everyone gets excited and thinks it's going to be on the market. And, and the problem with that is it's not going to happen quite that quickly. Um, with Ebola, Ebola, we had Ebola vaccines that um, they've been, a lot of them have been studied for a long period of time, you know, and that doesn't always get in the news. Yes, some of them were kind of rushed through up towards the end, um, but to get to that point, they've been studied for a while before then. Currently, right now, from a commercial perspective, there's nothing available for Zika. The fortunate thing about Zika is that it is related to the other flaviviruses. And so yellow fever, you know, we've, we have vaccines for. Um, West Nile virus, there's vaccines. There's not for humans, but for horse. And so we have that um, baseline, essentially, that platform on which to continue to build the vaccine because it is a cousin of those. And so they're kind of a little bit further ahead than what you'd normally be for a disease um, that's only really been going on for roughly two years. You know, three, four years ago, when it was only affecting 13 people in 40 years, no one's going to develop that vaccine, right? Now, all of a sudden, yes, when there's potentially millions um, infected with Zika, they're going to start doing that. So right now, yes, we have early stage investigative trials underway. Um, I was listening to a, a, a story the other night. And this is by researchers in Zika who are much smarter than I. Their best guess is that it's going to be two to three years until we have a a viable, commercially available vaccine for Zika. And that's, they said, if everything goes right. Um, They're pretty confident, though, again, because they have that platform on which to develop the Zika vaccine, that they will be able to develop anything. So, again, fortunately, there's already existing vaccines for other flaviviruses, so that does help out tremendously. So research, where are we going? A lot of this we, I've kind of talked about already um, as, we, as we've gone through. So antivirals, they've been looking at, researchers have been trying for, for years to develop um, an antiviral medication that can a, a, in, attack many different flaviviruses. And so that research is continuing. That research will continue to go on. Now they're just going to have to start testing those those molecules that they already had developed against Zika to see if they will actually work. Um, From a a perspective of when can we see one of these medications available, nobody knows for sure. So far, the ones that that have been um, shown to be effective against 
the actual flaviviruses, they've had been had too many side effects to be able to bring to market. And so we'll see where that research continues. Vaccines, again, the vaccine development is ongoing. Um, there's something like 15 different vaccines that are currently being looked at for Zika. So there's a, a large range, a big portfolio of Zika vaccines that are being looked at. Um, and, and again, we think that at least one of them will, will come to market. And then mosquito control. Um, like I said, the, the GMO sorts of mosquitoes definitely are out there, um, have been released in, Bra in parts of Brazil. I don't know. I, again, I, I keep meaning to look up to see if they're going to, to be released in the Florida Keys or not. Um, and, and other types of mosquito control from larvicides, insecticides, continuing to be looked at because those, again, could be quite beneficial if they are able to develop something that will work. And then effects of Zika and pregnancy. This is the big unknown. We know the microcephaly. We know that there are some children who have birth defects, who have learning disabilities, vision, hearing, um, seizures. We don't know, you know, not every child who has microcephaly develops those sorts of problems. Um, so some children with microcephaly essentially grow out of it, and they're just fine. Other children seem to have this. What we don't know is five, six, ten years from now, where will those children be at? Will they still be relatively symptom-free? Um, we don't know. And again, we don't know as well if a child is essentially a newborn and gets infected with Zika, will that child have any long-term effects or any, are there any consequences to young children who are still very much developing, developing Zika and having any sorts of problems? So Zika in the future, what do we think? Well, right now it's been estimated, and these numbers vary largely because of the symptoms. We don't know, if, you know, when 80% of patients who are infected with something don't have symptoms, it's very hard to accurately figure numbers out. And so when you look at numbers, how many patients have had Zika um, in Brazil, for example, those numbers vary widely from 500,000 up to 1.5 million and even higher. Um, and so it's very hard to know for sure how many people have Zika. But what, what we think we know for sure is it's likely to become endemic in this hemisphere. It's likely here and it's likely going to stay um, until we're able to figure some way out of eradicating it. Um, overall, it's really hard to tell, you know, what the, the, the long-term consequences of Zika will be. Um, there's not really been any documented disease before that's gone from essentially a couple handfuls of patients over 40 years to millions in just two or three years. And so it, it's very much unprecedented from that perspective. So a lot of it is going to um, really depend and will be interesting to continue to follow as we go through. All right, so just a couple case questions, things to think about, see if I did a good job or not of, of teaching you guys today. So this was a patient of yours and, and his wife, and so this is from a U.S. perspective. He's retired, and, and they're going to go to the Caribbean. Um, so they're, they're actually going to rent one of those sailboats we've all thought about doing and go you know, with the, the whole crew on board and everything, and they're going to go island hopping. So they're wondering, what should they do to prevent them from getting Zika? What, what would you recommend? What would you, yes? That's a good question. How old is his wife? Don't just assume. So that was kind of one of the things you guys are supposed to get. So good. You know, if, if she's, let's say she's 64. Insect repellent. Yep, yep, so just your basic mosquito sorts of, of control, right? Um, what if, well, actually, that's another question. I, I'm not, I'm not going to play that what if because then I'll give away one of the future cases. So good, yeah, just basic insect control. And I think it would also be important that you could tell that patient if they do develop Zika, they're probably going to be just fine. Take it easy for a couple days, which they're in the Caribbean. Um, fluids, rest, be very good, yes. I have no idea. I don't know if ozonics work. It might. Um, all right, so another case. Patient of yours and her husband are celebrating their 10-year anniversary with a trip to the Dominican Republic. Um, she's really worried about getting pregnant and contracting Zika and is wondering what she should do. What do you recommend? Go to Antarctica. Go to, Antarctica. <laughs> Go to Hawaii instead. 
Um, stay home, do something that's not going to go into a Zika um, area. It's, at this point in time, it's probably not worth that risk, even though the relative risk to her um, is probably pretty minuscule. It's still not worth that risk. Um, and so that's what the CDC would recommend. Go somewhere else. All right, so a 38-year-old male patient asks you if ibuprofen would be a good choice for him because he has an itchy rash, red eyes, a fever, and muscle pain. After talking to him, you find out that he returned three days ago from a business trip to Brazil. What would you recommend he take for his, or would you recommend ibuprofen for that gentleman? No, because it could be because of that overlap with dengue. Um, now, right now, with what's going on in Brazil, Odds are in his favor that Zika, but till they know for sure, best to stay away from something that could increase bleeding risk. Acetaminophen uh, would be a good option for him. All right, so that pretty much wraps up um, what I had. If, if you guys are, and I forgot to ask at the beginning where everyone's from and what area of, of, of practice you're in or, or what you're doing, um, but those of you who are healthcare practitioners in the United States, um, the CDC right now has tons of good information on Zika. Um, they've stayed up to date with it very well um, over the, the last year or so. Um, so they have lots of nice handouts that you can print out for patients, that you can give to people who are traveling, things to do, things not to do. And, again, they are continuing to update that. So any questions that you guys have? Yes? So the virulence difference, what we know right now is it seems to be pretty similar to the other flaviviruses. Is that what you're referring to? Well, I'm talking about, like, say, in South America. Oh, South America from, from area to area. Um, and so that's the, that's the big question right now, is why in Africa, so we have a lot of patients in Africa that, that do have antibodies to Zika but don't ever remember having any symptoms, and, and we don't see any increased risk in microcephaly. Then we go into the South Pacific, into Micronesia and French Polynesia, and there we have cases of Zika, but we don't have the microcephaly. And then all of a sudden we move over into Brazil. So there seems to be some difference, but we don't know for sure exactly what that is or why that is. Um, are there different strains? Are there di there's there's um, amino acids that are slightly shifted um, from the Africa to what we've seen in Brazil. But and, and I'm not smart enough to understand what those means. The, the papers say that it shouldn't make the difference that we're seeing. Um, so there does seem to be some virulence difference. Um, that Zika isn't always Zika, if that makes sense. That there's different forms of Zika. Any other questions? This handout is, and I don't know how many of you have been here before, but it is available online through the website if anybody wants to download it. I probably should have said that at the beginning as well. Um, so that is available as, long as, as well as my contact information is on there as well. So if you do have any questions, don't hesitate um, to get a hold of me. So thank you for your attention. Good luck getting back down the stairs, back to wherever. I'm going to let you guys go first so I can follow you. Thank you.